You are now listening to the April 3rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and prayers after God's own heart. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Today, we're going to reflect on the story of Hoshea, the 19th and last king of Israel. We will also encounter the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. These events are written in 2 Kings chapter 17. As we shared three weeks ago, the killings of kings in Israel persisted for some time, One after another, killings happened. Zechariah was killed by Shalom. Shalom was killed by Menahem, only a month after he became king. After Menahem, his son Pekaniah sat on the throne, but only after two years, he was killed by Pekah, one of the commanders of the army. Kings rotated five times in a short, ten-year time span and the situation in Israel was very brutal. Eventually, Pekah was killed by Hoshea, son of Ella. Hoshea became the king of Israel by killing Pekah in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah. He reigned over Israel for nine years. The Bible tells us that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who were before him. Theologians explain that Hoshea himself appeared to have refrained from worshiping idols by partaking in pagan religious rituals like the kings that preceded him. Nonetheless, he did not stop the people of Israel from idol worshiping. The Bible does not give us a lot of detailed records about King Hoshea. The Bible instead offers more details on how and why Hoshea and Israel fell and were driven out of their land. When Hoshea became king, Israel was giving tribute to Assyria, but after Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, died and his son, Shalmaneser, succeeded him, Hoshea stopped giving tribute and attempted to make an allegiance with So, king of Egypt. The reason why Hoshea made such a decision is unknown but it proved to be a fatal mistake on the part of Hoshea. Assyria was a very strong country at the time, and Hoshea reaped the consequences of that decision. Regardless, what Hoshea really overlooked was that God was in charge of everything. Instead of turning to So, king of Egypt, he should have turned to God for his deliverance. At the time, Israel was suffering through one conspiracy after another, and only the Lord God could help the nation of Israel. It was wrong of Hoshea to try to rule the nation of Israel on his own without turning to God. Even if he was not actively seeking after God, trying to forge an allegiance with Egypt was definitely against God's word that instructed Israel 
not to make alliances with foreign rulers. In retaliation against Hoshea's rebellion, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, moved in against Hoshea and captured him and imprisoned him. That was in the ninth year since Hoshea became king of Israel. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, then proceeded to surround Samaria to strike the final blow. But Samaria, the capital of Israel at the time, had enough water and food within the fortified city. The city withstood the besieging of the Assyrian forces for three years. Then Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, died, and Sargon succeeded him as king of Assyria. It was Sargon that was able to conquer Samaria and carried off the people of Israel as captives. He settled the Israelites in Hala and Habar, on the river of Gozan, and in the city of the Medes. This was the valley in the far north between the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. According to the historic record of Assyria, the number of exiled people of Israel was 27,290. The northern kingdom of Israel fell by Assyria and its people were carried away as captives and were scattered in foreign lands. The Bible tells us why the northern kingdom of Israel fell in detail in 2 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 7 to 18. These are long verses, but let's share them together to see what wrong Israel committed against God. It should offer us an opportunity to reflect and examine ourselves. Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel, and in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. The sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set for themselves sacred pillars in Asherim on every high hill and under every green tree, and there they burn incense on all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. They served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain, and went after the nations which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. 
they forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. God loved his people, and he continued to reach out to them. However, the northern kingdom of Israel brought in foreign gods and worshipped idols. That began with Jeroboam, the first king of Israel. That was evil in the sight of God. They did not listen to the word of God and continued to build high places and worshipped idols. They did not trust God and disregarded all of God's commandments. But God wanted the people of Israel, dwelling in sin, to turn back to him. God waited for them and spoke to them through many prophets. At times, God raised foreign countries to strike Israel, but it was all because God wanted them to realize their sins and repent and turn back to him. But the northern kingdom of Israel did not turn back to God. In the end, God raised Assyria and brought the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. This concludes today's episode. We will continue on with the story of kings next time. Have a blessed week. Satan tells
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is, You Will Live Forever. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. And I want to ask every single person, like you and I, we're having a one-on-one conversation right now. So here's the question. Do you know for certain, like are you 100% confident that if you were to contract this virus and die from it, do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you would go to heaven for all of eternity? I can't think of a more important question to answer than that question. And most people, when I ask that question, they either say to me, I don't know for sure if I would go to heaven, or I think I would, or I hope I would. They say, I'm a pretty good person. I've not done too many bad things. Maybe I've gone to church. But did you know that God says none of those things actually gets anyone to heaven? None of them. God says there is only one way you can know you will go to heaven when you die. And I want to show it to you now. I want to read you a story about Jesus, a man named Jairus, and Jairus' 12-year-old daughter who was sick and about to die. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along in Mark chapter 5, verse 21 says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So this crowd was gathering around Jesus because they knew he had power to heal the sick. Many people had been healed of their diseases by Jesus. Like imagine a physician right now with a cure to COVID-19. He or she would absolutely have a crowd around them. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Now, pause there. When we see that verse and we see this reference to the rulers of the synagogue, we need to realize these were some of the most revered and respected people in society in that day. So picture a man very well liked and highly respected by the crowds. So he comes up to Jesus and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Now that would have been shocking because the religious elite at this point were not a fan of Jesus. So for this respected religious leader to come up and fall at Jesus' feet just took everybody's breath away in the crowd. They just got really quiet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Now we find out later this is Jairus' only daughter. She's 12 years old, and he says she's dying. So that's why he implored him earnestly. In other words, he begged Jesus, please come as quickly as you can. Like in today's terms, she's in the ICU and she's barely hanging on. So just put yourself in Jairus' shoes. I don't even want to as a parent. Like picturing your child in this state. I know one parent who 
I'm familiar with, have relationship with, who is in this state at this moment with their child alone in a hospital, a teenager. Picture your child in this state just pleading for somebody to help. And not just somebody, but pleading before the only person who is your daughter's only hope. Jairus says to Jesus, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Did you hear that confidence? And Jairus says, if you will just come touch her, she will live. This is a profound picture of faith, but it's about to get even more intense. Verse 24 says, and he went with him. Read it today. I just want to I want you to put yourself in Jairus' shoes as this happens. When your daughter's condition is urgent. Problem is, there's a crowd in the way. Verse 24 says, And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Basically, this woman has been as sick, sick as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. And who had suffered much under many physicians, had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, even if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, at this point, if you're Jairus, you're thinking, why, why are you stopping and turning around? Why are you asking such a ridiculous question? Because tons of people are touching you. Which is exactly what the disciples asked too. His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Again, picture Jairus' daughter dying and Jairus sweating, thinking, come on, this is no time for small talk. And everybody else in the crowd is thinking the same thing. Like, doesn't Jesus know how important Jairus is? How urgent his daughter's situation is? Meanwhile, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before her. Jesus and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now that was a powerful moment for this woman. But this was a painful moment for Jairus. Listen to what happens. While Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Like the words that no parent ever wants to hear. I think about parents in our church family who have heard these words, even over this last year. And so I think about their faces and those funerals I think about the emotions in Jairus' mind, on Jairus' face, and this moment as his jaw drops and his eyes fill with tears and he looks over toward Jesus and this random woman. And the people say to Jairus, why trouble the teacher any further? In other words, it's too late. There's nothing Jesus can do now. 
but. Oh, that's a good word. What a great word, a glimmer of hope. But the first clue we have in the story that death is not the end of the story. But overhearing what they said, and the word there for overhearing could be translated ignoring. It's a great word, like overhearing, ignoring, disregarding what they said about the death of Jairus' daughter. Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. What a statement. Like imagine this, Jesus looks at Jairus, standing there shocked by the news that his daughter has died. He's soaked with tears, now filling his eyes, and Jesus says, Jairus, you have two options. I'm gonna write them down here. Like one option is fear, which I am going to define here as trust in this world. Fear. Trust in this world. Trust in what they are telling you, that it's over. Trust in what doctors could do or couldn't do. Trust in this world. And as long as you trust in this world, it will ultimately lead to fear, which makes sense, right? Like we know this. We're being reminded of this right now. We can't trust in our health, even in our best medicine. We can't trust in our jobs. We can't trust in our economy. These are ultimately unsure foundations that only lead to fear. So that's one option, Jesus says. The other option, two over here is faith, belief, which I'm gonna define here as trust in Jesus, which was a pretty outlandish option at this point, right? Because Jesus is the one who let Jairus down. Jesus was the healer of diseases, but it's too late for that. And at this point, Jesus has never raised someone from the dead. Nobody ever seen or even imagined that. That was preposterous, unthinkable, unimaginable, beyond the realm of possibility. Faith against all odds is trust in Jesus. So you put yourself in Jairus' shoes and you picture Jesus saying this to you. Do not fear, only believe. You have two options here. And then Jesus takes you by the arm and begins to walk with you to your home. That's exactly what Jesus did. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So as they walk, imagine the chaos in the crowd that's left behind because Jesus just blew it. Jairus' daughter is dead because Jesus didn't get there in time. Now we don't know how far they had to travel, but we know it was far enough that by the time the messengers got the word to Jairus and they finally made it back to Jairus' home, the mourning process was in full motion. And into this scene, Jesus entered and he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Like what kind of question is that? Because this precious little girl just died, that's why. And by the way, Jairus actually thought you would help her and heal her. We see how well that worked out. 
And Jesus says, the child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, what's interesting about this word sleeping is that it's used in other places in the Bible to describe death, like real death. Jesus is not saying she's just in a coma. The reality is Jairus' daughter has died. Jesus knew that. Jairus knew that. Jairus' family knew that. These mourners knew that. There was no doubt. But the connotation of this word that Jesus uses is obviously different. It's like Jesus understood death differently. Like death, though real, is not the end. So, what did the people at Jairus' house do? Verse 40 says, they laughed at him. And the word for laugh is basically to deride him with disdain. They mocked him. Much like, by the way, many, even right now, mock any mention of God. Jesus put them all outside. The language literally is he told him to get out. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, so that's Peter, James, and John, and went in where the child was. So now picture this again from Jairus' perspective. Walking into that room, that house, seeing your daughter for the first time since you left left her side, you told her, I'm going to somebody who can heal you. I will be back as soon as possible but you didn't make it back in time. You didn't even get to say goodbye to your little girl. And in the emotion of that room, you watch Jesus take her by the hand, which by the way, to touch a dead body would be to make yourself unclean. But apparently Jesus was not concerned. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Little girl. The word is like a tender term of endearment. Like saying today, hey, sweetie, or literally in that day, little lamb, arise. One verb, one imperative of command. And Immediately, the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Immediately, twice. And picture it, Jesus takes her by the hand, says one word, arise, and immediately she sits up and starts walking around. I can only imagine what that means. I don't picture her saying, all right, let me take a couple laps around the room. Like she is running straight into her mom and dad's arms. And they are staring at her with amazement. As are Peter and James and John, everybody but Jesus is shocked. He just took someone who was dead, not just sick, not just in a coma, not just looking dead, but dead. And Jesus gave her life. Story doesn't tell us, but I want to see the looks of the faces on the faces of those who are laughing at Jesus when that girl comes walking out of that house. In fact, 
That's the way I picture would be a great end to the story. The way I picture it, this girl comes walking out, standing next to her mom and dad, and they shout, Jesus raised our little girl from the dead. And they go bring that crowd to come and see and believe in Jesus. Like that's how I think the story should end. But that's not how the story ends. Watch this with me. Listen to the last sentence in the story. And Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. What? Like, okay, I get the second part. This is a girl who's been sick. She needs nourishment. It's actually a powerful picture of Jesus' personal compassion to say, feed her care for her. So I love that. But the first part, Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know this. Like nobody, don't tell anybody about this. Like why not? And the answer to that question is the key to understanding this story. And the same answer is the key to understanding the pandemic we are in right now. So please don't miss this. Please pay close attention to this. Jesus knew that something else was needed. Something greater than healing people of diseases and something greater than even bringing someone back from death. Because the reality is, so think about this with me, that woman earlier who was healed of her disease, one day she would get sick again. And one day she would die. And this precious little girl, now walking around her house, one day, maybe decades from that day, one day she would also die. So please hear this reality today in the middle of this coronavirus crisis, apparently we need something greater than a cure to a disease that will keep us from death. Let me say that again. We need something greater than a cure to a disease that will keep us from death. Because even if we have a cure for COVID-19 and every other virus, The reality is you and I are still one day going to die. Why do our bodies waste away? There's a reason for this. And it all goes back to the entrance of sin into this world. God created the world and you and me to enjoy him, to enjoy each other, to enjoy the world in perfect harmony. But we turn from God to ourselves. Every one of us has chosen to trust ourselves over God. That's the story of every one of our lives. It looks different in our different lives, but the core story is the same. The Bible calls this sin in our hearts. And our sin separates us from God and ruins the harmony that God designed for us with him with each other, and in the world. That's why we have sorrow and sickness and coronaviruses and cancer and 
disease and death in this world because we are separated from God. And if you or I die in this state of separation from God, we will spend eternity in suffering away from God. And Jesus, knowing this, came to do the unimaginable, the unthinkable, that which was beyond the realm of possibility in our minds. Jesus came not just to heal many people of their diseases, as awesome as that is, and he came not just to bring a couple of people back from the dead, as amazing as that is. But this is why Jesus says, said, don't tell anybody about this because they'll think that's the point of my coming when the point of my coming is so much greater than this. At the point of my coming, Jesus is saying, is to take on the root of sickness and the root of disease and the root of suffering and the root of death. I came to take on sin itself. And this is what Easter is all about. Jesus lived a life with no sin in him, which means he did not have to die, but he chose to die to pay the price for our sin. Jesus died to pay the price for your sin and my sin. Jesus died on the cross for us, But, but his death was not the end of his story. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave and this is the greatest news in all the world. Sin, the root of all sickness, the root of all disease, the root of all suffering has been severed and death has been defeated. And eternal life is now available to anyone, everyone, anywhere, everywhere who believes in Jesus. So come back to this word, believe. Come back to this this call to faith, to trust in Jesus. Not trust in this world, not trust in your health, not trust in your job, the economy, anything in this world, including yourself. Faith is trust in Jesus and That is the only way you can know you have eternal life in heaven. Not by trust in this world or trust in yourself. And when you trust in Jesus, this totally changes everything about how you view the COVID-19 crisis. Remember one other time when uh, my granddad had got me this jacket that I loved. Loved this jacket, wore it everywhere I went. Even when it's hot outside, I'm wearing the jacket. And I wore it one day to school, put it down at the beginning of school, came back at the end of school that day, and the jacket was gone. Someone had stolen it. And I remember my dad coming to pick me and my brother up, and uh, I told him what had happened. He goes in, starts to talk with the principal. I'm sitting there pretty upset, and... Steve, my older brother, comes to me and puts his arm around me. He says, David, I heard your jacket was stolen. I said, yeah, I was, I was pretty, pretty distraught. He said, let me, let me take care of this. And I saw him walk over to kind of the ringleader of this sort of thing in the school and pull him aside and say, listen, my brother's jacket was stolen. And if you don't have it back to me by tomorrow morning, 
then you and I are going to have a talk. And the guy walked away. So next morning, I'm sitting in my first class, kind of by the door, and uh, kind of looking out in the hall to see. And all of a sudden, around the corner from down the hall, I see my older brother, Steve, and you'll never guess what he's holding on to. He's got my jacket. And he comes, and he pokes his head in my room and hands it to me and he says, David, I just want you to know no matter what happens to you, your brother has always got your back. Now, here's why I share that story. Like this COVID-19 crisis has been described as a war, as a battle against this virus. Everybody wants to win the battle, wants to defeat this disease. And we talk about coronavirus survivors, people who faced COVID-19 and lived through it. And I appreciate, in a sense, what that means, even rejoice in what that means, but I do fear that it runs the danger of missing the point because it encourages the impression that if you get COVID-19 and you live, then you've won. You've won the battle with this virus, which also implies then if you die, then you lose. You've lost the battle. But I don't think either of those things are actually true. Because beating COVID-19 is not about staying alive. That's what the world would say, but it's not true. Because If you live through COVID-19 and you're still not trusting in Jesus, then you haven't won anything. Your trust is still in this world. and You haven't won anything at all. In fact, I would say that COVID-19 has won because you're all the more convinced that you can face whatever this world throws at you on your own. That's not a win. That's a loss that will ultimately lead to eternal loss. Want to know what the win is? The win is knowing. Yes, we're in a battle. And yes, many will live through it. And yes, many will die in it. But in the end, there is only one God who has ultimately created all of us. There is only one physician who can ultimately heal any of us. There is only one ruler who has defeated sin. And there is only one king who has conquered death. His name is Jesus and he has your back. And knowing that is the win. Because when you know that, when you know him, then your hope is not in the latest projections Your hope is now in his loving provision. When you know Jesus, your peace is not based on your personal odds. When you know him, your peace is grounded in the one true God. And when you know him, when you know Jesus, then you know that even if one day soon you or I find ourselves struggling to breathe in a hospital alone, we will have no reason to fear. Do you know why? Because the one who conquered 
death has your back and you are 100% confident you have eternal life. Do you know with 100% confidence that if you were to die today, that you would go to heaven because you have put all your trust in Jesus as your life? Again, this may be the first time to ever watch or be a part of a church gathering for you. Or you may have grown up in church. Maybe you've even called yourself a Christian. But you know that if you were to stand before God right now, it would be clear that Jesus is not your life. You may believe certain things about Jesus, but you are not trusting Jesus as your life. And for many, you have all kinds of excuses for not trusting Jesus with your life. You say, I've still got questions. That's great. Like today you can get them answered. Start that conversation right now. Don't waste another minute. You say, well, the church has too many hypocrites. But with all due respect, you know that has nothing to do with it. The medical profession has some crazy people out there too. But you're not ignoring all medicine right now. Somebody else's hypocrisy has nothing to do with you. And besides, you've probably had your own hypocritical moments. So be glad that Jesus loves hypocrites. That means there's hope for you too. That's the point. Like Jesus didn't come for the perfect because none of us are. He came for the imperfect, which qualifies every single one of us. You say, I'll do this later. But I want to warn you, there may not be a later. I cannot say this more plainly. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. I'm not either. You or I could die at any moment, and this opportunity will be gone forever. And even if, even if you live for many more years, you don't want to harden your heart toward God right now to hear the voice of God's Spirit speaking to you like He is today, and you say, maybe later, and God lets your heart harden all the more, and you never come back to this moment. I say to some of you, this could be your last opportunity. Today is the day. Don't make excuses. Today's excuses will be tomorrow's regrets. Like five minutes into eternity, what are you going to be glad that you held on to that kept you from Jesus? I want to invite you to decide right now to put your trust in Jesus. This is a defining moment. Today is a defining day for you to do what God is calling you to do, to put aside your pride and place your trust in Jesus. When you die, not even if you were to die, death reality for all of us, do you know for certain that when you die, you will spend eternal life in heaven? And if the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, then I want to invite you right where you're sitting right now to pray to him, just to say in your heart, God, I want and I need Jesus to be my life. I know that I have sin in my heart that separates me from you. And I hate my sin that separates from me, me from you. And today I am turning from it. I need you to save me. 
today I am putting my faith, my trust in Jesus. In his death on the cross for my sin. And in his resurrection from the grave as my Lord. Today I trust in Jesus with my life. Oh God, we praise you. We praise you, we glorify, we worship you for the reality that death is not the end of our story. That sin is not the end of our story. That sickness, that coronavirus is not the end of the story. That COVID-19 will not have the last word. We praise you, Jesus, that you have the last word. And God, I pray for all who are trusting in Jesus now, that they would know the wonder, the beauty of eternal life with you as Lord. God, I pray for all those who know you in this way, that you would help us to make this good news known with urgency in these days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
are listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you, so if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, please feel free to email us at askhsgm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul Podcasts on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. The following program is called Prayers After God's Own Heart. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel listeners. This is Terry with the new program called Prayers After God's Own Heart. I'm sure you heard of the expression, according to my heart, or seek after someone's heart. This expression is used once each in the Old and New Testament. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 15 says, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. And Acts chapter 13 verse 22 says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. When God talked about how they were after God's heart, he must have meant that they knew what God wanted and what God desired. Then, what do you think this program, Prayer After God's Own Heart, is all about? That's right. This is a program in which we will think about prayers that are in harmony with what God wants and God desires. As Christians who have God as our Father, our lives cannot exist without praying to Him. Then what do you think prayers are? A dialogue with God? Letting God know my intention? Asking God for favors? Each of us may have a different idea about the definition of what prayer is. According to a dictionary, a prayer is explained as addressing a solemn request or expression of thanks to a deity or other objects of worship, used as a preface to polite requests or instructions. So, in simple words, a prayer is making a request. Requesting means asking for a favor about something a person would like to be fulfilled. Then, the definition of prayer according to the dictionary must mean that it is an act of making a request to a sovereign being for the things that a person desires. So, a definition like this must be the definition that the world has defined. Then, what is the meaning of a prayer to those of us who are Christians? If we consider how we are separate from the world, shouldn't there be a certain difference in our definition of prayer? Even Jesus talked about how our prayers must be different from those of hypocrites. Despite that, we see a lot of Christians give prayers that are not so different from the prayers that worldly people give. Let's look at a typical example. There is a widow who showed persistence for justice in Luke chapter 18 verses 1 through 8. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. 
There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God, nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What do you think? This parable about a persistent widow is a fairly well-known story. But what word or phrases remain in your heart after you read the story? Most of us may notice phrases such as cry day and night, quickly, and he will bring about justice easily when we read or listen to this parable. So after reading this parable, based on what the judge said, because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. We could think that God will grant our prayers if we pray continually day and night, since even such an unjust judge granted the widow's request. However, the reason Jesus told this parable was not for us to pray continually until we get what we want. Verse 1 tells us his purpose of giving this parable. It is to tell us that we must pray continually without despair. What Jesus is telling us is not about praying continually until we get what we want. But what he is telling us is that even if it seems like God is not answering the prayer, or even if it seems like God is not listening to the prayer, we ought to pray continually without being discouraged because God has a plan for us. Jesus is telling us that God knows everything and he will avenge on our behalf for wrongs done against us. A prayer is not about God granting us what we want, but about avenging the injustice that caused us to get framed, hurt, persecuted, or tried. Then what is a prayer that is after God's own heart in situations like these? Wouldn't it be a prayer that trusts God to be faithful despite tribulation, without despair, so that its righteousness will be fulfilled? So, it will cause us to have an unhealthy prayer life if we do not understand God's word correctly. How about you? Do you think you are praying after God's own heart? I'm sure all of us pray a lot, but have you wondered if you are praying the right prayers in your lives? If the prayers you are praying now are the ones that God will receive with glory? Or why God is not answering our prayers? What do you think a prayer is about? Is it okay to tell him about our complaints? Do we always have to give thanks? Why do we need to pray about our needs if God already knows everything about us? Have you ever deeply contemplated if you should continually pray about the same thing when there seems to be no change? Also, we know that a prayer is a way to talk to God, but we do not know exactly what it means to talk to God. Wonder if the Sovereign Lord really cares about us what we should ask for, or what we should talk to Him about. Most of us learned about what prayer is about. I also learned and know what prayer is about, but became curious about what it really means to pray after God's own heart. So we are going to learn about prayers from people in the Bible who prayed to God. 
There are many people like Daniel, Elijah, Hannah, and David who pray to God. Also, the content of each of their prayer is different depending on their unique situations. We are going to learn about their prayers, the condition of their hearts, and how they express their prayers to God. We will be able to learn what it means to pray after God's own heart if we compare their prayer to our own prayers. My desire is that we will have a chance to learn what it means to pray after God's own heart and in what direction we should focus instead of how much we should pray. We will take a look at Jehoshaphat's prayer next week and see what we can learn from it. I'll see you next time. Have a blessed week.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.